0: Father, thank you for the energy and the enthusiasm and the hope and encouragement that you give us in so many different ways, Father. The church is not a building. The church is not a function. The church is not an appointment on Sunday mornings, Father. The church are your children by faith, drawn together by your Spirit. And when we are among those who know you by grace, who have come to believe and have been made new again in the Spirit... It's an entirely different experience than we would have anywhere else that we might go, Father. It's a special and blessed time. We thank you that we can have it. We pray that you would never leave us without it, that we would always have someone near in a community that can care for us. Even when we may travel and move and change where we live, Father, we are all still the same body, the same spirit. Thank you for that blessing, and thank you that we are united in study of your word. That the word was that which called us into faith. It's the word, Father, that holds all things together. It's the word that renews us and makes us like Christ. Let us see it and hear it as if words from you and not from a man. For it is, in fact, God-inspired, God-breathed, and it is your ordained purpose to preach it through the mouths of men, but to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 35 is where we go this morning. Last week, we watched as Jacob experienced that sad and shameful episode in his family life when his daughter was assaulted, Dinah was assaulted by that local prince. And then Jacob's family was asked by that prince and his father, the king, to join in the local pagan culture to compromise with them and to form a single culture with them as a way of resolving their dispute. And then we watched as Jacob's lifelong struggle to demonstrate moral leadership within his family had finally caught up with him because he stood by as his sons out of revenge, deceived that people, murdered that people, plundered their city and enslaved the remaining families. And he watched all of this happen. And at the end of it, all that Jacob could think about was his own misfortune at having been made a pariah among all the peoples in the land. Now, remember at the beginning of chapter 34, going back at the beginning of the last chapter, we learned that Jacob had put down roots here in Shechem at this place where this situation is developed with this local town. Shechem was to be Jacob's home or so Jacob thought. And he had made some decisions. He had done some things here that suggest to us very strongly that he has decided for himself that he was done wandering in the land. His son's actions now are going to create tension and the need for him to move on despite what he wished to do. And as he moves, he has these newly taken slave families that he's trying to integrate into his own family. And with them comes a sinful pagan influence, which he has to deal with now. So in chapter 35, Jacob begins fleeing from the place where he's been, this place near Shechem, And to do so according to God's word, because God is going to continue to go with Jacob, confirming his covenant and at the end of it, fulfilling a promise that he has made to Jacob some 30 years earlier. Let's see how this develops. Chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. We'll pause there. This is the fourth appearance of the Lord to Jacob, if you're counting. Jacob is commanded by God in this appearance to leave Shechem for Bethel. And when he gets to Bethel, he's to build an altar and then he is to make Bethel his home for at least some time. You notice God says to dwell in Bethel and that's an indication that God expects him to stay there for some length of time. But as I said a moment ago, Jacob has made Shechem His dwelling place, at least now for the time being. And God is telling him it's time you move away from this empty town that you've plundered and go to the place I've told you. You have to wonder if perhaps God didn't want him to move away because the temptation of being next to this empty city might have caused his sons to want to settle there as a permanent home since it's now vacant. And as I said before, we have evidence that Jacob was trying to stay in this land as a permanent place. In the end of chapter thirty three. When Jacob first comes back into the land after having fled from his uncle Laban, we're told that he purchases a lot of land, a plot near the city of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And that's where he's now been for ten years. He's been living in the same place now for ten years. Now, that's a degree of investment in the land that exceeded anything that his father or his grandfather had ever done before him in their settling of the land. But according to the promise God gave to Abraham, the promise that is holding Jacob close to God, the seed promise that makes him a part of this covenant, according to that promise, God said to Abraham that his descendants would wander in the land of Canaan and then later in the land of Egypt for a total of 400 years. God did not want the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to set roots down in this land at any point prior to when God himself brings them into the land. He doesn't want them to be part of the culture. He doesn't want them to meld with the native people. He doesn't want them to start to make a claim to a land that God has said in his promise, they will not claim until the day God appoints. So here you have Jacob now in circumstances where it is literally impossible for his family to remain in one place for very long because they are, as I said, pariahs in the land of Canaan. They remain separate now from everyone since they have a reputation from that massacre in Shechem. I wonder what he would have done. I wonder what Jacob would have done in response to God's commandment to go to Bethel if he hadn't been so hated by the local population. I mean, he's been here 10 years. He's bought the place. There's every reason to think that he would have found an excuse to stay exactly where he was. And we know his heart is not necessarily a heart to obey perfectly. He's done plenty of the opposite. But what's interesting for us is how God is willing to make our circumstances uncomfortable to the point that we even feel forced to make a change if it is His will that we move on. God wants us forever moving in this world, and that's whether physically or spiritually. There is no room in our economy with God, our work with God, our life with God, to sit still, metaphorically or otherwise. So if you try to put roots down into a world Where we aren't supposed to find common ground, then you can expect God to come along at some point and cut those roots one way or another. So as to continue that progress, he has planned for us. I can speak personally of my own moves at times in my life, the times I've had to make changes. My wife and I, we were in the military and obviously military driven moves are another issue. But we moved both military and after military, maybe 11 times in 13 years or some crazy number like that. And. I can remember in each of those circumstances, though, the move was preceded by something happening in our world to make staying unattractive. The church that we thought was the perfect church suddenly didn't meet our needs anymore. The neighborhood that was perfect suddenly got on our nerves. I'm talking theoretically here. And with that, there's usually a connection on the other side where God is drawing. He's not just pushing, he's also drawing. So there was something about where we might go that was interesting. There was something about the change that was inviting to us. And when you take the two together, it became increasingly hard not to obey, that's the heart of God. God understands that obedience while we live in this sinful fleshly body is tough, doesn't make excuses for it, but he does help us try to overcome it. The word of God is our light. The spirit in us is that engine of change that will draw us closer to God. But then he'll go to the third step, the circumstances of our lives, so that we really can't Do anything but understand his intentions. Now, the worst of us can resist even to the point of ignoring our circumstances, but he will get what he wants. So when God has stacked the deck in the direction that he wants us to go, if you encounter that, but you ignore the obvious, you try to beat the odds, so to speak, then the time we spend in denial of God's call and his direction will only make that inevitable adjustment all the more painful when it comes. Jacob let his sons and his family develop into the kind of men that they are, and that's produced this horrible circumstance in Shechem. But God says, you know, if that's the way that I need to move you to where you're supposed to be, so be it. And now Jacob has to move because of his son's sin in that city. God wasn't the author of that sin, but it played directly into God's purpose because it became that fulcrum that God used to dislodge Jacob out of his comfort in Shechem and to get him to where he wants to go. Now, we're going to study here a little bit more later today why it was so important that he moved from Shechem to Bethel. I'm particularly amazed here at the way God can turn even our sin into vehicles to drive us into obedience. Doesn't it warm your heart or at least bring awe to your mind? To know that we serve a God who can make every little detail of our life play out to his purpose. Even the regrettable ones, even the sins that we wish we could take back, they ultimately all lead to his glory. So as Jacob departs Shechem, he tells his household, dispose of all your idols, purify yourselves, change your garments. Remember, Jacob's family just absorbed all of these idol-worshiping pagans and they brought their idol worship with them, as you would expect. So those idols now have to be purged from within the family. Moreover, the sons themselves, the sons of Jacob, their sin now needs to be addressed before the Lord because they've committed murder here, murder in the city of Shechem. And there needs to be some recompense. There needs to be some process by which they come before the Lord in repentance, sacrificing according to the way God expects, acknowledging that blood is going to be spilled, a ritual atonement, in other words, for sin, And God wants to see Jacob's family go through that process. Now, remember, animal sacrifice in itself does not atone for sin. It is simply a ritual. But like water baptism for us today, it pictures a spiritual truth that God himself will do through his own work. And in the case of atonement, that atoning work is done through the blood of Christ, through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. God is simply picturing that through the animal sacrifice. But at the day and the time of this event, Jesus had yet to die, so the ritual was the evidence of faith in the hearts of those who would hear God and respond. That's why, by the way, we don't anymore have altars in churches. People think sometimes every church should have an altar, particularly if you grow up in a tradition in which those are still present. But biblically speaking, you never want to have an altar in a church because an altar has only one purpose in all of God's economy it is a place of sacrifice. It's not the place you lay the communion meal. It's not where the candles sit. The only reason you have an altar is for sacrifice. Otherwise, it's just called the table. And an altar doesn't need to exist once the church acknowledges that the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross has been made. We're not looking for another sacrifice, so there's no need for an altar. It's a pointless artifact at this stage. So Jacob is ordered by God to purify themselves and to go to Bethel and to sacrifice in Bethel. And Jacob responds by ordering his family first to purify themselves, which that command in Hebrew literally means a ritual washing of water. They may have gone into the water in a very similar way to the way we do baptism, or it may have been done in some other ways. This is an act that pictures a repentant heart. So when you see the word purify, and we know that in Hebrew it's speaking of a washing, what you need to understand is God is saying repent. That's the effective meaning of the term As it's being spoken in this culture. Secondly, after they've repented, he says you are to change your garments. Now that declaration is likely happening. This whole event, in fact, is happening on probably the same day or maybe the day after the death of all those men in Shechem. This is not something that happened weeks later. It's therefore likely that the clothes of the men, the sons of Jacob, may still have had bloodstains on them from the massacre. So there's an immediate practical need for the change of clothing, but it goes deeper than that, of course. He says it as a part of this purification process. It pictures your new walk in Christ. Uh, There's plenty of imagery in the New Testament. Paul says that we are to put on Christ as a way of saying we're to live a life that reflects Christ. We're to live in the faith that we've been given. And this is reflected here as well. The call is for Jacob's family to repent and live according to The promises they've been given according to the relationship they have in those promises with God to walk with him in purity. Now, the slaves themselves are told to put their idols away and Jacob collects them. I think it may even be the case that he's collecting idols from his own family. We don't know for sure that it's not also his family because, first of all, we know that Rebecca came with some idols from her dad's home. We talked about that. It may even be the case that the sons collected some when they plundered the city. In verse 2, you notice it says, his household and all that were with him. That distinction implies those who are of Jacob's house plus all of the slaves. So he's speaking to both. And then we're told he goes and he hides them. The term in Hebrew is actually bury. So he buries them in the ground next to this tree, we're told. The corrupting influence of these people and their idols is being taken out of the family. And then it's being buried or hidden in the ground. So the picture that's being formed is these are dead gods. They don't have life. And we're showing that by burying them as if to show their death. This is a really important moment for Jacob in all that we've studied of this guy. This is a turning point in his life, I would argue. He still has a long way to go, but he realizes at this point that he's in need of God's protection. And he knows from experience that God will protect him. He mentions it in verse three. This is a big step. Think about Jacob from the past. He is in imminent danger. He believes he will be attacked by other people. And he's probably right. And rather than do what he's normally prone to do, which is to scheme his way out of that danger, he immediately appeals to God. He immediately says, God will have to protect me. And turning to his family, he obeys everything God asked him to do. Purify, remove idols, change garments, go to Bethel. That's a good sign for a man who in the past has not been prone to that kind of obedience. You know, if there's one thing, and I hope there's more than one thing, but if there's one thing you take from the story of Jacob when all is said and done in this story, I want you to take from his life the encouragement to know that no matter how poorly you start, God doesn't give up, and we can eventually see the fruit of his work in our life. And now, there's a, there's a choice that we make in how fast that goes. The pace is in our control to a degree. We, we can yield to the Spirit, or we can resist But the mere fact that a man like Jacob can move this far is proof in and of itself that God can and does change hearts. So on your worst day, think about Jacob, at least long enough to remember that there is still progress. There's still hope. So Jacob now has become wiser about the importance of obedience and holiness, but that isn't going to change the fact that he will still contend with his son's disobedience. This goes back to what we talked about last week. Sin has consequences. Those consequences run deep and wide in our family. We will never fully avoid them. But it will be the case that as we obey, God's grace will come upon us. Look at verse 5. The Lord says he was faithful to produce fear among the peoples so that as Jacob was fleeing, he was protected. There's that sign of grace. Even as Jacob begins this walk under the cloud of attack, brought about because of the sins of his son, which in turn were brought about because of his choices as a parent and a father in years past. Still, here's God protecting. Here's God being faithful. Let's go from there. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Bakuth. Jacob has returned to this important place, Bethel. This is really the focus of the chapter, Bethel. You may remember this is the place where Jacob rested his head on that night as he fled from his father's house because he was afraid of Esau. At that point, God appeared to him and he saw what his come to be called Jacob's ladder, that vision of the angels ascending and descending that ladder into heaven. This is the place where God appeared to him in that way and spoke to him and told him that he would be blessed, that God would keep him, that God would protect him, and that one day God would bring him back into the land. This is where he learned that the covenant that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac would also be his. This is the place he first learned that from God himself. And now it's been 30 years since that moment. Here we are 30 years later, and Jacob's first act when he comes back to Bethel is to build the altar that God commands, and he names it the altar of God of Bethel, El Bethel. And at this moment, at this one moment, Jacob's obedience is complete. Regarding the first time he was here, regarding the experience he had when he was here 30 years earlier, finally now after 30 years His obedience is complete, and therefore, God's promise now is fulfilled. What am I talking about? Well, remember that when God appeared to Jacob in Bethel 30 years earlier, here's what God promised. In Genesis 28, it was 28.15, God said, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then in response, you remember what Jacob said? In 28.20, then Jacob made a vow, saying... If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And then, flash forward about 20 years, he's been with Laban, he now has four wives, he has a passel of kids, and it's time to come home. And when it was time for him to leave Laban's house, you remember God appeared to him again and said, it's time to go, go back home. And when God made that appearance in Genesis 31, here's what he said to Jacob, 31, 13. He said, I am the God of Bethel. He called himself God of Bethel. And then he says, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. God appears when he's still back in Iran and appears to Jacob and says to him, I am the God of Bethel. You remember that place, Jacob? Remember when you left? Remember what you told me? Remember what you promised me? It's time now to go back. And in that place, you will see my faithfulness. But until this moment, until we've reached chapter 35, Jacob has not gone back there. Oh, yeah, he went back in the land, but that's not what God was asking. And that's the subtlety of chapter 31. When God called himself the God of Bethel and then referenced the place, the place that was anointed, the place where you made your vow. And then he says, go back. It was implied clearly to Jacob, go back to Bethel, go back to where you made that vow, because the vow said, I will come back and I will tithe and I will sacrifice in this place. So God has expected Jacob to obey that vow, to keep his word. And he has been pressing Jacob to obey it. And Jacob's sin has prevented him from going there until now. And God has used that sin to dislodge him and get him to where he said he would go, to where he should have gone. Why did it take him 10 years? What's he been doing in Chechem? The only thing we can do is guess because the scriptures don't give it to us. But it would seem that the cares and the pleasures and the concerns and the riches of the world, to quote from Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the sower and the seed, that those things have grown up and choked off the fruit that is supposed to come out of Jacob's heart. And so Jacob, because of the sin of his sons, has reason to obey and he finally obeys. I wonder if Jacob could possibly have realized how much time, would pass how much sorrow how much grief that he would have to experience in the time between when he received that promise in Bethel and now 30 years later when he finally comes back but God's will will be done in his life and in everyone's life and I think personally it's comforting to see God getting his way in one way or another because God makes good promises Because God has blessings in store for the believer. And I'm not speaking, of course, about some promise of earthly wealth or any other nonsense. We're talking here about better things, spiritually meaningful and eternal things. But you can be conformed the easy way or you can be conformed the hard way. We have two ways we can obey God, the easy way and the hard way. The easy way is to listen to the word of God and live according to it. Easy in the sense that it's easier than the other way. Not that it's easy, but it's easier than the alternative. The hard way is to pretend God isn't listening and God doesn't care and he's not watching and he won't pay much attention to what we do. And then eventually he will force our hand to the extent that his will desires. So for us, the hard way can be really, really hard. And so as if to emphasize all of that trial, all of that grief that Jacob has experienced over 30 years, largely due to his own sin, of course. Just to emphasize that one last time, you notice here in the text that as he reaches Bethel and he sets up this altar, the family experiences yet another death, Deborah. Deborah dies. Now, Deborah, you don't know by name because her name hasn't been mentioned in the text until now. But she was described in an earlier point. She is Rebecca's nurse. Now, you remember, Rebecca is Jacob's mother, and she was the one who cared so much for Jacob, in contrast to her husband Isaac, who preferred Esau. So Deborah is Rebecca's wet nurse. And any woman who had to produce multiple children through surrogates, like her maid, Bilhah, well, they used the benefit of a wet nurse to help keep all the children fed because children would go five years until they were weaned in the ancient culture. So that's a lot of feeding. So a wet nurse was a very valuable thing to have in the home. It was a necessity, actually. And Deborah is first mentioned by name here, but she was mentioned in Genesis 24 originally. Because in 24, verse 59... We were told that when Rebekah left Laban's home and was betrothed to Isaac, and remember the servant was taking Rebekah back to meet Isaac, we're told then that Laban gives Rebekah a nurse, and that nurse goes with her to meet Isaac. Well, this is the nurse. This is Deborah. She's been in the family that long. Now, the Bible never tells us when she joined Jacob's household, but the very mention of her death at this point in the story is intended to communicate to us, the reader, that Rebecca is no longer alive. Rebecca, when she died, and she probably died while Jacob was still in Laban's home working, then the nurse at that point would have had no need to be in that household anymore. She would have been sent to the heir. Well, Jacob's the heir. So she was probably sent, after Rebecca's death, to Jacob while he lived in Haran. And now, at this point, God is helping us understand that one of the consequences of Jacob's disobedience over these long 30 years has been that his mother, Rebecca, never saw her son again. And in noting Deborah's death here, we come to understand by implication that Rebecca had already died. And in dying without seeing her son, Rebecca paid her price. Her penalty, her earthly penalty for the disobedience she was involved in, was that she never got the very thing she was striving to have, which was to hold on to her son. And then you see Jacob's sadness at losing Deborah. He names this oak, the oak of weeping, just to reflect his sadness. Here you see, I think, a picture or an example of Jacob's mourning for his mom. He wasn't there when Rebecca died. He couldn't be there. And that in itself was a penalty that he suffered under for his sin. Deborah was essentially the surrogate for him. He would have been nursed by Deborah. He's never seen a life without her. And in many ways, he probably thought of her as mom. And when she finally died in his presence, I have to imagine, he mourned her like the way he would have mourned Rebecca had he had that opportunity. So this is yet more reminder to us that Jacob's troubled life has had these messy complications. But God is bringing them to conclusion. He's bringing those stories to an end in this moment. And then in verse 9, God, it says, appeared to Jacob again when he came to Badam-Aram, And he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken from him with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So now we have the fifth time that God has appeared to Jacob. This is the second time in the land, the fifth time overall. And now you notice he pronounces a blessing on Jacob and not just any blessing. This is the blessing. This is the one we've been watching move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. This is the seed promised. This is the inheritance that God created through his word that now is being inherited from person to person. We know this blessing well by now. Certainly the changing of his name indicates he's become part of the covenant covenant. He says, you will bring forth a company of nations, and that's a reference to the tribes of Israel. In Abraham's day, it was spoken of as a multitude of nations. That refers to the Arabs as well as the Jews. But now with Jacob, he's narrowed it. A company means nations of the same kind or tribes. The kings will come forth from you. That's a reference to the kings of Israel. More importantly, Jacob's descendants will inherit this land one day, the day we know is the future day of the kingdom of Christ, when Jesus returns Ironically, though, this is the blessing Jacob always wanted. When you really trace Jacob's life back to some source moment, where does his sin really start? Where did his sin really take hold in his life and direct the path that he took after that? You'd have to trace it back to the moment in the tent, wouldn't you? You'd have to trace it back to where he deceived Isaac. What was the reason for the deception to obtain this blessing? The irony is here, The blessing that Jacob wanted, he's only received after he did the right thing rather than in all the ways he tried to do it the wrong way. You can even look at the moment earlier when he was wrestling with God as the famous iconic scene we studied already. As he wrestles with the angel of the Lord, what does he demand of him? Bless me. So first he tries to get it through scheming. Then he tries to do it through sheer will and force. Finally, though, he gets the thing he wants when he simply does what he's supposed to do. In the way God has prescribed. If you go back and you look at the prior four times God has spoken to Jacob, you're going to find something interesting that you wouldn't necessarily have noticed. In all the things God has spoken to Jacob up to this moment, he has never actually blessed him. He said, I will bless you. He never actually said, you are blessed until now. What brought about the difference? Well, he has complied fully With the word of God, with his own promises and God's commands, he has come before him and sacrificed, showing his repentant heart and his acknowledgement that God must forgive his sin. He sets up a pillar. He anoints it with oil. He pours out a drink offering. What are those elements of? Tithing. What did he vow he would do? Tithe. He's come back to the place he promised. He's done what he's promised. And in this moment, now, he is blessed. You remember when Abraham took Isaac to the mountain? It was only then that he gets the blessing pronounced for him. And then James in the New Testament tells us that was the moment when the faith of Abraham was perfected, was fulfilled, was shown. Similarly, only when that effective faith is shown in obedience does God respond in kind saying, now I will bless you. This is not a quid pro quo. We're not saying that God's blessings were conditional on behavior. We're saying that God's timing was conditional on behavior. God was going to get him to the point of obedience one way or another, easy or hard. In this case, it took 30 years of hard work on God's part to give Jacob the impetus to obey. The faithfulness of God was never in doubt. The promises are not arrived at by means of human work, but the timing can be. It all fits into God's plan sovereignly in the end, but when we see it play out in the life of an individual, there's no doubt we can connect the dots. And see that obedience. Folks, there's a simple principle. Blessing follows obedience. Relationship with God is established on the basis of faith alone in God's promises realized in the man, Jesus. But the blessings of that relationship await obedience. God has the power to compel our obedience and he will use our sin and its consequences, if necessary, to arrive at that outcome. But I would remind you of the wise words of Samuel. In First Samuel fifteen twenty two, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the reminder that you are faithful even when we are not, that you are always with us by the word that you have given through Christ. And that when we run far, Father, you are still there. But I'm also thankful, Father, to remind myself and to remind others that you discipline those whom you love and you scourge every son. Father, I pray we would give you less reasons to discipline. That we would obey, Father, so that we might see the blessing of the relationship we have by faith. And that you would cause us, Father, to to consider all that we say and do in light of what you expect of what your word demands, of the urgency of the time, of the nearness of your return. Let us be good ambassadors, Father, representing you in all that we say and do. Let Jacob's life, Father, be a reminder to us that you are ever present and persistent in seeking our relationship in obedience, but that one day, Father, we might uh, see you face to face and hear that we served you well. Bring others to join us, Father, according to your will. Let us serve them as well, and and let us be ambassadors to them. And be with us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.